0: The Daily 202's big idea is sponsored by Delta Airlines. Delta has partnered with 55 academic institutions to create a pipeline of the next generation of pilots and technicians. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 29th. In today's news, Bob Mueller is investigating Donald Trump's late-night phone calls to Roger Stone. Snubbing the president, Senate Republicans' turn on Saudi Arabia. And two men have emerged as frontrunners to replace Nancy Pelosi as Speaker, eventually. But first, the big idea. Life expectancy in the United States declined again in 2017 for the third year in a row. The government put out the numbers early Thursday morning in a bleak series of reports that show a nation still in the grip of escalating drug and suicide crisis. This is the longest sustained decline in expected lifespan at birth in a century. An appalling performance not seen here in the U.S. since the stretch from 1915 through 1918. And those were pretty bad years. That period included World War I and a flu pandemic that killed 675,000 people in the United States. More than 70,000 Americans died last year from drug overdoses, up from 63,000 the year before. The opioid epidemic continued to take a relentless toll, with most of those deaths coming from drugs sold on the street, like fentanyl and heroin, as well as prescription narcotics. Since 1999, the number of drug overdose deaths has more than quadrupled. Deaths attributed to opioids were nearly six times greater in 2017 than they were in 1999. There are some numbers that seemingly pass for glimmers of hope to experts who are studying the new CDC report. For example, deaths from legal painkillers did not increase in 2017, and the number of heroin deaths did not rise from the previous year. But what that means in hard numbers is that 15,482 of our fellow citizens still died from heroin overdoses last year. As a point of comparison. Just under 3,000 Americans were killed in the attacks on September 11th. Robert Anderson, chief of the Mortality Statistics branch at the Center for Health Statistics, tells my colleague Lenny Bernstein that the leveling off of prescription drug deaths may reflect a small impact from efforts in recent years to curb the diversion of legal painkillers to users and dealers on the streets. But the geographic disparity in overdose deaths continues. West Virginia once again leads the nation, followed by Ohio and Pennsylvania. Josh Sharfstein, the vice dean at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health and a former health secretary in Maryland, says the most lamentable aspect of this crisis is that policymakers know which approaches make a difference, such as medically assisted treatment for drug abusers and increased availability of mental health services in states where they're badly lacking. He said the frustration that many people in his field feel is that there are obvious things that could save many lives, but governments are failing to make those services available. Here's the rub. In most developed nations, life expectancy has marched steadily upwards for decades. And that's continuing. But not here. Not in the United States of America. Not for the past three years. Is this the new normal? Is society going to accept this? Or are we going to do something about it? And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one. President Trump's habit of making late-night phone calls to chat with Roger Stone has drawn Bob Mueller's attention. He used to call Stone at all hours during the campaign. Caller ID would label them unknown, but Stone said he knew to pick up quickly. There was a good chance the voice on the other end of the line would belong to his decades-long friend, the restless insomniac, dialing from a blocked phone number. Those nocturnal chats and other contacts between the man who now occupies the Oval Office and an infamous political trickster going back to the days of Richard Nixon have come under intensifying scrutiny as the special counsel bores into whether Stone served as the bridge between Trump and WikiLeaks, as the group was publishing hacked Democratic emails that it apparently obtained from Russian military intelligence. During an interview with the New York Post yesterday, Trump said that a pardon for his former campaign chairman Paul Manafort is not off the table. Manafort was introduced to Trump by Stone, and the two were former business partners. The president said that prosecutors for Mueller had poorly treated Manafort, who was convicted of eight felonies this summer by a jury and pleaded guilty to two more. By leaving open the possibility of pardoning a former top aide whose lawyer has been a source of inside information about an investigation into Trump himself, the president showed a new willingness to publicly signal that he will intervene to protect people who are in the special counsel's crosshairs. And after retweeting an image of Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein in a jail cell, Trump told the New York tabloid that the number two at DOJ, quote, should never have picked a special counsel. Number two. The Senate advanced a measure to end U.S. military support for the Saudi Arabian-led war in Yemen, a decisive rebuke of Trump's foreign policy. The 63 to 37 vote, which came after the White House pleaded with Republicans to stand by the Saudis and the president, is only an initial procedural step, but it nonetheless represents an unprecedented challenge to the security relationship between the United States and Riyadh. The vote was prompted by lawmakers' growing frustration with Trump for defending Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's denials of culpability in the death of Washington Post-contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi, despite the CIA's finding that he had almost certainly ordered the killing. Their frustration peaked shortly before Wednesday's vote, when senators met behind closed doors to discuss Saudi Arabia, Khashoggi, and Yemen with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. But notably, CIA Director Gina Haspel skipped the briefing. There were reports the White House told her not to go, though she and the White House deny it. But her absence so incensed lawmakers that Lindsey Graham, one of the president's closest congressional allies, threatened not only to vote for the Yemen resolution, but also to withhold his support from any key vote, including a government funding bill, until Haspel is sent up to Capitol Hill for a classified briefing. The pressure is now squarely on Trump not just to dispatch Haspel to the Hill, but also to take concerted steps to hold the prince accountable before the Senate makes its next move, which is likely to come next week. Number three. Democrats formally nominated Nancy Pelosi to become the next House Speaker, but she will have to win over at least half of the people who voted against her behind closed doors in order to retake her gavel in January when the vote comes up on the floor of the House. She now has a month, plus an unmatched political network and a pile of potential chits, to chip away at the opposition. Underscoring her clout, Pelosi won over a group of eight centrist Democrats in the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus who had agitated for procedural changes and threatened to withhold their votes if they didn't get them. In a carefully negotiated deal, Pelosi agreed to some but not all of their demands, and she announced the agreement just as Democrats were piling into a Capitol Hill hearing room to cast their votes. Pelosi remained at loggerheads, however, with a more intransigent group that has taken aim at party leadership, calling for a shakeup of a top echelon inhabited by three lawmakers in their late 70s. Two of the guys in their late 70s, Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn, both won the number two and number three spots under Pelosi by voice vote and without opposition. But Democrats did inject fresh blood into the lower tier of party leadership, picking Ben Ray Lujan from New Mexico for the number four position of assistant Democratic leader and Hakeem Jeffries of New York as Democratic caucus chairman. That's the number five position. Jeffries defeated Representative Barbara Lee, a Democrat from Oakland. She's 72 and a 10-term veteran with a strong following on the left. It ended on a sour note, with Lee suggesting publicly that ageism and sexism were the reasons for her 123-113 to loss. Both Ben Ray and Hakeem are in their mid-40s, and they're now the frontrunners to succeed Pelosi as the top House Democrat when she decides to step aside, which could come two years from now. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 29th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman.